<laughs> Tony, you ready? Check, check. Testing. One, two, one, two. And five, four, three, two. Hello, I'm Sarah Ruffi. Thanks for joining me, Steve, for Woman Warrior Lawyers podcast today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first off, it's Dr. Stephen Rupel, mm -hmm. DC. When did you de decide or know that you wanted to become a chiropractor? Uh, kind of a tough, long-winded question, but I'll do my best to make this short and sweet. Uh, I have, so I was going to college and uh, acquiring a chemistry degree. I thought that my career path was going to go to the PhD level, and then I would use that PhD and teach in academia. And I really like chemistry. I was uh, getting close to... Uh, I was really involved in in research in college in the uh, in the organic chemistry realm. So I was awarded an internship doing polymer chemistry at Dow Corning in Midland, Michigan, which is not really in the academia world and definitely not in organic chemistry. But my instructor at the time said there there are basically two sides to chemistry: there's industry and then there's academia. I would like you to get a taste of both. So you really know what you're getting yourself into. So uh, I believe there were like eight applicants. I was chosen, uh, the one out of the eight, to go to Midland, Michigan to work for, I think, 10 weeks in, uh, at Dow Corning and um, went there. And it was horrible, to say the least. I Have you, ever, have you seen the movie Office Space? No. Okay. So an old older movie back in the late 90s, early 2000s that... It's just, it's a movie about the, it's comedy, but these guys who just work in this office and they're in cubicles and just everything that's boring about it. And that's kind of what my job was like. I mean, I was doing organic, I was doing polymer chemistry, which is new and kind of amazing, but like at a small research team, I had my own little cubicle with my computer and there's all these corporate rules and laws and things like that. And as time went on, it was like, I was involved in some really nice, uh, nice projects, thoughtful projects. But I had to reflect on, like, do I want my life's work making some company more money? And I believe in a higher power, and I believe that I was created to help people. And that's what I really like to do, and I did not believe that my purpose was being served by being in that capacity. So I, I kind of freaked out. I had a, I had a, a moment of, like, I've been I've been doing this for three years, and I, I have this. I think I do really well at it. And I uh, I'm here in Michigan, and like, what the heck am I going to do with my life? So this was your senior year of college, going into between junior and senior year. So coincidental, uh, I was with uh, so I was a chemist, and I was with a bunch of chemical engineers in this internship program, and we we were all great friends. We we hung out a lot, and so very coincidentally, there was this one guy who. Uh, he was from Davenport, Iowa, and we were just hanging out, talking one night, and and he he said he was from Davenport. I'm like, yeah, I've never heard of it. He's like, have you ever heard of Palmer College of Chiropractic? I said, no. He's like, well, that's where chiropractic was kind of founded, and so that's that's just where I'm from. And so, and I'd never been to a chiropractor before, but it was just interesting. Like, no, what's what is what are chiropractors? What do they do? And so that night, late at night, I went on the dial-up internet and kind of looked at Palmer <laughs> College of Chiropractic, and and it's like, wow, everything about this profession is kind of what I what I believe in, and like how I want to really live my life. Like, 
You can be your own boss. You can, you know, operate your own clinic. You can help people. And so, like, I just, I requested some more information. And um, uh, a few weeks later, I get this packet that had some information, had this cassette tape in it. I'm like, what am I going to do with the cassette tape? This is 2001. And so, and that's kind of how outdated that was at the time. But um, so that arrived at home. And so I had a nine hour, nine and a half hour drive back to Michigan to finish out my last few weeks. And I, all right, I'm going to listen to this stupid cassette tape. Put in this cassette tape in my uh, my 1990 uh, Dodge Daytona car. And it was uh, Dr. Guy Reekman. He was the president of Palmer College at the time. And he, it's like he's speaking to me. It's like, everything that I want in life, like he's talking about, like, this is what the profession is like. This is how we approach patient care. And like, it's like, he's talking to me. Like, so it was like your aha moment. Very much so. And so like, I was so moved by it. I get back, uh, I get back to Michigan. I'm finishing out some of these projects and like, I have no interest in this anymore. Like, what am I, what am I doing here? And then it's like, okay, I can apply to, to chiropractic school, but I'm still finishing out my last year of my chemistry degree doing some like physical chemistry is like one of the hardest chemistry courses that is even possible. And, um, so in finishing up my, uh, my synthetic chemistry research project and it's like, for what, like none of this interests me anymore. Like this, I'm not helping anyone by doing this. And so I came back to school, I applied, I got in, finished out my last year of chiropractic school, graduated in May of 2002 and went to Palmer a month after. So you started in the summer for your 10, 10 mm-hmm. trimesters in the middle of the cornfields in Davenport, Iowa. You got it. And it was a, it was, it took a long time to adjust because I didn't know anyone there. Um, but like halfway through, I felt comfortable and enough to call Iowa home. So despite being from Medford, Wisconsin, that's where I grew up. And then you came back up here after you graduated. Yeah, a job just kind of landed in my lap. And, uh, you know, my student loans were starting to come due. And, um, you know, I not everywhere is looking for a chiropractor. So, like, it was kind of slim pickings. It was the middle of the winter. And so this job just kind of landed in my lap. And it's like, okay, this is a good landing spot for now. Um, it's semi-close-ish to home. I don't know anyone. But, like, you know, I can start making some money and just start paying off some student loans and being a responsible adult. And when you started your job up here, Mm -hmm. did you always know that you wanted to own your own clinic or did, did that just kind of happen as well? I think the overall goal was to have my own clinic and be my own boss. But like, I was so wet behind the ears that I just, I didn't know how to operate a business. And I, I just, I didn't even know how to be a chiropractor. I mean, you know, our, our, in grad school, we're taught the mechanics of it. We can fix problems, be a clinician, but not really how to tie it all together. And so um, I figured the job that I had doing what I was doing was sufficient at the time because I know that I needed to, my grandfather always says you have to kiss ass before you can kick ass. So, Very good quote. I think I need to remember that absolutely. one. Absolutely. And, and so I knew that I had to get kicked around a little bit and I was fully willing to accept that. And, uh, cause I know that whatever next step it was going to be, like, I was going to take some lessons from that and build from that. So, so what was your final straw when you said, <laughs> I'm not going to work here anymore. I'm not going to go working for somebody else anymore. It's time for me uh, to kick ass. There's a few final straws. One that sticks out, uh, right off the bat was I didn't get paid a lot. 
it was based on some percentage, but it was a really low percentage of my performance. And so, um, you know, if I worked really, really hard or really, really, really hard, the compensation was negligible. About the same. Yeah. So there really wasn't a whole lot of incentive to go crazy because like, um, you know, you're just making someone else more money. And so one of the biggest things was, you know, I was as busy as I ever was. I was seeing a lot of people, but I saw that my collections, which were out of my control, that was someone else's department. My collections were decreasing, which means that I was making less money. So I brought it up to my immediate boss, just saying, you know, hey, I think I'm working really hard. Um, my collections are are off. They're they're just they're just slowly decreasing. And with him taking such a high percentage, and if I'm collecting less, it would have made sense to me that he would have said, "Oh, okay. Well, this obviously then influences my income in a negative way." You know what? Today's Wednesday. Give me till Monday. I want to look into it. Let's let's talk about this. Like I'm I'm curious what that's like. There's none of that. This seemed to be common sense to me. That wasn't that wasn't the case. It was you need to bill more charges. Like without skipping a beat, that's what his answer was. And it it told me that he had no clue what was going on. And just the fact that he just brushed me off so quick like that told me that he didn't care about me. And it's like, okay, um, your time to exit is coming shortly. So that's when I started planning my exit. And did you use a mentor or were you relying on advice from other people who knew how to run a business, maybe not a chiropractic clinic? Sure. And putting that plan together? Yeah, I had done uh, I had done an internship for four months before I graduated Um and it was in Bettendorf, Iowa, right next to right Davenport. outside of Pont. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, Doctor Bob Kaminsky, uh, he's no longer practicing, but he he was kind of my mentor. He was uh, he was great. Like uh, without going into the weeds, like I didn't grow up with a my dad left when I was young, so uh, I, I didn't really have many father figures. So I would attach myself to strong men in my life that. Uh, I could learn things from and people I could look up to. And that's what I think I've done that my whole life. And so he was one of those like father figures within my profession. And so, um, you know, we had stayed in contact ever since I had uh, had left school and, and uh, I'd go down to Iowa every chance I get and I'd visit him. So when I was planning my exit strategy, um, just like, Hey, this is what I'm feeling. Uh, what do you, how do you suggest I proceed with this? And so he was giving me some fantastic advice. And uh, then of course uh, you, as my lawyer, um, <laughs> get very practical, very practical advice. And, but it was also, you know, the reassurance that I got from uh, Dr. Kaminsky, Dr. Kaminsky, the, the re uh, the reassuring that I got from you uh, being my lawyer as well. I mean, that was, um, it made it easier to step out into kind of a scary place. So. Well, and I know that when you did step out, you have such a good rapport with your patients. Were you concerned that how many of them would leave with you or how many would stay where you were at? Yeah, there was, uh, there was definitely that thought. Um, difficult to calculate, right? Yeah. And, but I'm like, okay, well, I've, I've practiced here for four and a half years. I think I have some, you know, great relationships with people. Um, I think that 
there's some nervousness. Uh, there's a little bit of confidence, but a lot of nervousness because like, I don't know how to run a business. I know how to do my job really well. And so is the business stuff going to interfere with the job stuff? And so, um, so I left in, uh, October 15th, 2010, I quit my job, started three days later on the 18th. And I saw one person that day and I was used to a schedule of 30 or 40 a day. And I'm like, oh, shoot, where is everyone? And what did I do? What did I do? And so this is no joke. That entire first week, I had these horrible headaches every single day. And just like, did I make the right decision? Like, like, it's just it's just kind of scary. But I remember there's this this quote by Kenny Rogers that says, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. So I kept thinking all every single day is just like, you know, the good was I had a steady paycheck. It was horrible, but it was it was paying the bills. And, you know, I grew up poor. So like being able to pay bills, I think that's a step in the right direction. And so like, okay, that was good. It was steady. It was safe ish. Um, safe and or slow and steady wins the race, right? For sure. But I mean, there's, you know, people who are way more successful than me, you know, in business and money and that sort of thing. And so like great is out there. I just had to give up what I was comfortable with to possibly get that. And really the risk there's, I'm trying to think of the risk. So for me, I like at the time, you know, there's no kids. I was, I did not have a spouse. I wasn't even dating anyone. And so the risk was living poor. Like I grew up. (laughs) So like, if this didn't work out, like I'm living in my car. Oh shoot. I don't even own my car. Like M and I bank owns my car. So that's where I'd be living. And so like I worked every single day for eight straight months. So if you do the math and the calculations, I opened in the middle of October. So that means I I saw patients on Thanksgiving day, uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas day. I got sick with the flu. I got sick with the flu on Christmas day. And I remember in the morning puking my guts out. And then feeling semi-okay to come in and see a patient that was scheduled. She was having, like, crazy migraines. And so, at that point, I don't think she really cared that I was sick. Like, she was more concerned about, like, those migraines. And so, and then New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, Easter, you know, so on and so forth. And so, um, because there's, there's no, there's, there's no room for failure. Because I'd be living in a car that I didn't even own. And then I'd be on the street. There's no room for failure. Failure was not an option. Not at all. And that's, you hear that a lot when people go out on their own and the scariness of that unknown isn't, it kind of goes by the wayside because I am so miserable where I'm at. Mm -hmm. There is something better and I'm going for that something better Mm -hmm. and failure is not an option. So Tony Robbins always talks about burning the boats. Yeah, yeah. That when you walked out the door from your employer, you burned those boats. Holy and cow. you yeah. were in 150%. Oh, yeah. And that I didn't burn a bridge. That was absolutely torched. You, you know, annihilated is, it. So this is this is interesting because like um, you know, I've told my wife this story and you know, we weren't dating at the time, so like she didn't live through this with me. But, you know, I told her some bits and pieces of this, but I've never verbalized the story to anyone. It's like it's played in my head a billion times. 
So it seems like I'm getting a little emotional just like putting this out into words and like, you know, kind of out in the open um, because it's kind of a it's a it's a very personal and vulnerable story. And, um, you know, I didn't say that I can't say that I had a bad relationship with my previous employer. Um, it just wasn't good and it wasn't nurturing. It wasn't fulfilling. It was it was for sure not fulfilling and so i define my own fulfillment build that fulfillment and like i said that first week i saw very few people and it's like you know i saw so many people and like i thought i had a great relationship like why aren't they coming over and i and i knew that my previous employer wasn't going to tell people where i went um and then there's still people there's still people who uh, I know that still, like, th- one of them is my neighbor. I thought, like, we had a fantastic doctor-patient rapport. She lives four houses down, and she's still not a patient. Like, she just, I, I don't I don't know. I think she was just comfortable just be- going to that location. And then it was just, it w- so it wasn't me. And I'm not, I'm not taking it personally. But she still hasn't seen me, and sh- I think she just still continues to go there. And it's fine. Like, you know, now, fast forward 10 years later, my schedule's full, and, you know, I can't. You know, I can't dabble in, you know, some of those small little details anymore. But when you, when you think about it, it's kind of funny. I do remember my first patient that called, my first new patient that called, who had never been a patient before. It was like maybe two or three weeks after I opened. And so I was so shocked. Like, how the heck did you find me? <laughs> and it was so, but it was very surprising. I'll never forget that first patient. And How did um, they find you? Um, just a referral by another patient that, uh, that had followed me. I, apparently that original patient that followed me, they were very adamant on my location because they weren't telling my previous employer wasn't telling anyone where I went. And there's even rumors that I was dead. Like it's crazy what, crazy. what businesses will do when somebody leaves. Super crazy. So, um, but no, it was, a um, you know, kind of a, a difficult trying time, but persevere if you had to do it all over again would you i would and so much so that you know i like to tell people to do that even more but then like hey here are the lessons i learned maybe a little bit in the, uh, of the hard way um but here's some things you should avoid so for example i was just in lacrosse this past weekend at a uh at a technique seminar <coughs> excuse me and there are two is a, a married couple they work in two separate clinics that just not going well and they they're 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 trying to plan plan their exit strategy and like hey if you need any help let me know i i've been there and i can you know i have you know i can connect you with whoever can help you out so what are some of the let's say the three biggest lessons that you've learned along the way um so ironically that we're talking about this so i I brought your book along So what I really, so I remember like, this is even before your book came out, years before this, you had told me, uh, we were talking about networking and there was some, I think you called it like the, I don't know if it was a course you took or something you read, I don't know if you made it up. It was like the million dollar practice and basically you had to meet so many people per week. Three contacts per yeah, week so, to so maintain if you your could business go through this. five to grow it. Sorry, I wasn't listening. So what what is, what is this formula? So... In order to build your practice, yes. the formula that I have followed and one of the business coach that I worked with gave it to me that you need three contacts per week to maintain your business, five contacts per week to grow your business. And then the question comes down to how do you define a contact? Okay. 
And that's more than just getting a business card, I imagine. It's, it's however you define a contact. But it's all about building relationships. That's the way I have come to interpret it. And when you're really busy, it's even more important to maintain those numbers. Because I have found over the years that when I'm really busy and I decide, well, I really don't have the time for the client development time mm -hmm. and I don't do my three or five per week, my phone slows down Okay. until I start to do it again and then the phone picks up again. Okay. Um, have you experimented with going above that? Like, oh, we're going to do 10 contacts this week. Have you noticed... Maybe maybe not exponential, but like, have you noticed a higher incline of growth the more people, or you just not have time for that because you're growing? You know what I mean? Well, over the, I do know what you mean, and over the years I've changed how I define a client development contact. What did it used to be when you first started? When I first started building it into my calendar, it was going to a lunch meeting getting together with somebody for lunch, um, going to like Kiwanis. I'm in Kiwanis is one of my service organizations, going to an association meeting, anything like that. I had gray blocks on my calendar and the gray or not gray tan constituted client development. Okay. Now I look at client development as any contact with a potential client or referral source. That okay. can be talking to somebody at the grocery store. We tend, we follow the approach of we work with people who work with us. Okay. And go to, I will look at my client list when I need something. I need a plumber. Do I have a plumber on my list? Do I have an electrician on my list? Do I have a grocery grocery store on my list do i have a restaurant whatever it is we'll go there first makes sense and when you start talking to people you make sure that they know what you do and imagine my surprise one day i'm in the grocery store in the checkout line and the cashier tells me i am so grateful on how wonderful your staff was when i needed to get a will done right away and they took care of us this was four months after the person had come into my office. And the only reason they came into my office for the will is because they knew that I was a lawyer. Okay. Because I shop at the grocery store and we make sure that people know what, what we do. Sure. So I know that we have talked about that multiple times. Mm -hmm. Have you applied that same practice and what have, what have your results been? That's a fantastic question. And I would love to give you some sexy answer. Um, That's not your style, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, when I first started in practice, I was a part of uh, BNI. So for your listeners, it stands for, uh, it means Business Networking International. I thought it was a great organization to springboard into meeting people because you're not competing for business. Like I was the only chiropractor in the group. You have one realtor, you have one lawyer. So I thought that was I thought that was fantastic, and so it was a once a week meeting, and they encouraged meeting outside. So it kind of follows those principles, and I think you also mentioned that kind of in your book too. And so I think that was fantastic. And so 
but I kind of outgrew it, which they don't tell you, but I think most people can read between the lines that the whole purpose of the BNI is to not need BNI anymore. But of course, those contacts are still are still important. So I think I feed some of that, even just some of the patients that I see. Those can be contacts. They know what I do, obviously, mm-hmm. because they're they're coming in. Um, but I mean, most of the time, I don't see someone just once. But um, so you get to know their family, you get to know their profession. You have to know their profession because, like, what is what is going to help or hurt their case? What are they aggravating during the day? That sort of thing. What are their hobbies? What do you have to? What do you? What recommendations you have to give them on weekends? That sort of thing. So, I think for me, it's kind of a constant thing. But truly, and maybe this is something that we need to talk about. Maybe not tonight, but I, I think this is a Tony Robbins thing. I need to f- spend more time working on my business rather than in, in my your business. business. So, I my normal hours are Monday through Friday, seven till six, and I've done my best. I'm not going to say my best. I need to quantify that better. I've tried to do a good job of at least taking a few hours off on Thursday afternoons to work in the business. You mean on the business? Sorry, on the business rather than in the business. Thank you. But then, of course, the phone rings. Like, Steve, I got this headache that's not going to quit. Oh, and you mean like when I call? You know, and I get headaches too. And I and I know like when you have one, like it's never a convenient time, right? And so it's like, okay, well, my last one's at five, uh, at five minutes after four or whatever. Like, okay, how does four fifteen sound? And then someone else calls. Okay, what about the four? So and it just keeps going, and all of a sudden, like, oh, where's that time to, you know, to work on the business? And then it's like, okay, then it's weekend, and then uh, it just kind of snowballs from there. And so it's it's a great problem to have because. You know, again, we talked about when I first opened up, I first, you know, first week I saw like four people. Now, like, you know, I'm not going to complain about it, but it's just um, you only have so many hours of the day. That's true. And one of your comments was knowing what your patient's hobbies are. Yeah. And I happen to know that you have some pretty interesting hobbies. (laughs) To some circles, yes. To most normal people, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we talk about first sure. your extreme sports? I consider it extreme. Okay. Um, fascination with doing Ironman competitions. Okay. Um, how did you get into that, and how many have you done sure. so far? Um, so I do the Ironman triathlon, which constitutes a two point four mile swim, one hundred twelve mile bike ride, and running a full marathon, twenty six point two miles. Sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. It is. Um, I I do not have any God-given athletic talent. I come from a long line of small German farmers. I spent many years being picked last in gym class. I was just a small kid. And I was very active, but, uh, you know, I didn't hit a growth spurt until much later in life, and uh, I was – in high school sports, I was a average participant. I was not a standout in anything. Uh, not for lack of trying. Uh, it's just the way that it was. And I didn't feel that it really grew into my body until like later on in college. So once I got to grad school, I didn't know anyone. I lived by myself. And so I gravitated towards silent sports. Because like, you know, 
unless you're part of a team or something. You're not going to play football or soccer or whatever else. So I started like running, swimming, and biking. One day, one of my brothers said, hey, you should do the Ironman. And I've heard of it. And when I learned it, it was, you know, 140.6 miles total, I thought, there is no way I could ever do that. There's no way I could ever do any of those, like, three things on their own. And, like, it was crazy to me. Fast forward about a year or two after that, I get invited to do some medical work at the Ironman Triathlon in Madison, Wisconsin. And I expected to see these ripped, tall, lean machines. And I walk around and I see these round-ish, shorter, older women and people of all, and I don't want to pick on women and people who are older, but like, it's just not fitting what was in my head. And people of all ages, shapes, sizes. The reality didn't match it did the, not. the image. And I'm like. Your internal image. So I'm working on some of these people and I'm thinking to myself, like, I look like I'm in better shape than you. Like, how are you going to do this? You're like, oh, this is my third one. I love doing this race. Like, holy cow. Like, this is, cr this is crazy. Like like there's such a huge inspiration and it's so difficult if you've never been there, but the energy at an Ironman event, it's palatable. It's palatable and it's addicting because like you, you get inspired by these people and you can't help but kind of semi compare yourself to, to these individuals. And you're like, wow, if you can do that, like I can do that. So I signed up for one never have ever done even like a little triathlon because I told myself I could not do it. And I just wanted to prove myself wrong. And I want to sound like a jerk when I say this. I have a degree in chemistry. It was difficult, but the steps were laid out for me. Like you take these classes this semester, these classes this semester, you pass these classes, you get this degree. You go to grad school, You get you, these are the classes you take to get your doctorate. You see these many patients through through student clinic. You meet these requirements. You are a doctor. It is laid out for you. Very methodical. You have to follow it, and you get there. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. So here's this Iron Man. I have no idea. Like, my body can't do that. How is it going to do that? Like, now, now, I know there are training plans and steps you follow. You still have to do that work. Like, you know, that those are plans that not everyone can follow. And so, like, okay, how do you do this? You run a lot, you bike a lot, you swim a lot, and hopefully you put it all together. And so the the night before Ironman, they do, like, this athlete meeting where they talk about the rules and regulations, but they also have this, this little program where they bring up the youngest individual that's doing the race, the oldest, the person who's lost the most weight. And so they brought the oldest person, this, this gentleman, named, gentleman named Frank. I remember he was from South Dakota. This is 2007. And that was your first one? My first one. And he, this guy, he's like 72 years old. He limps on stage. He has this ace bandage wrapped around his knee. And I'm like, what? Like, this is crazy. So they introduced him as Frank. I forget his first name. His story was incredible. He was diagnosed seven years ago with terminal cancer. He, before he got sick, he was, he wanted to do an Ironman. He was going to train for one. 
And so he had six months to live, and he asked his doctor, can I still train for this race? And this is seven years after his diagnosis. No, so this is when he was diagnosed. So, yes, so, yeah, yeah. So this was, so as he's limping on stage, this was seven years after. Got it. So while he was getting diagnosed, he was, he was given six months to live. And he's like, well, I'm training for this race. Can I still train for this? And they're like, you can do whatever you want. Your, your days are numbered. He kept training for this. His cancer disappeared. Interesting, isn't it? Fully convinced that training for this Ironman is what cured him. He has it in his mind that if he stops training, the cancer is going to come back. And this was like his, oh, so this is seven years after his diagnosis. It was like his fourth or fifth Ironman. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so he joked on stage that the knee that was bandaged up was actually his good knee. <laughs> and I'm like, this is incredible. Like, oh, like, wow. It was just, it was so inspiring. And so fast forward through the day of my Ironman. And I, I'm getting close to the finish. I, I never thought I could even possibly finish it. And it's within grasp. And I see Frank coming down around Camp Randall Stadium and I'm looking at my watch like I think I'm barely making it through like how on earth is this guy gonna do it and I was so sore and beat up after I crossed the finish line it was the most rewarding thing I've ever experienced you collapsed didn't you no I didn't collapse I just couldn't walk very well (laughs) so call it what you will but I, I learned that Frank crossed the finish line. You get 17 hours to do it. You start at 7 a.m. They cut you off at midnight. He crossed the finish line with like two minutes to spare. But he crossed. He crossed and he finished. It's amazing. Sadly, I don't remember what Frank's last name was. I haven't been able to follow him. I don't know if he still does it or not, but just super inspiring. But like, again, the energy is palatable. You see these stories at every race. Maybe not someone super old like that, but like, Someone who, uh, someone who is racing because their their daughter is diabetic, or you know, someone who's an amputee. Like these amazing, amazing stories. And so me, like I think in some ways it's amazing enough that I proved myself wrong that I could do this. But truly, compare it pales in comparison to what other people's stories are. And but again, the energy is palatable, and you get to see these people. So anyone who might be listening, if there's a local. Ironman race or something like that to to go to go and watch to see these incredible people. They're, I mean, I can't even say they're incredible athletes. They're doing some very athletic things, but these people are incredible and in what they what they're putting themselves through to kind of reach the goals that they. Well, it really takes want. a person digging deep and for sure and battling a lot of their demons. I would suspect for sure. to overcome and endure what you have to. In that 140 some miles. For sure. And, you know, the thing that I think in some ways to the public that goes underappreciated are the family members of those people because, you know, they're sacrificing birthday parties, family barbecues to go for their five hour training ride. Um, you know, the date nights, the time spent together, it's sacrificed because you have to train. There's There's a lot that you have to do. And so... Um, that's not what you always see on race day and, um, it goes underappreciated, uh, to the public eye, but, um, so everyone out there, anyone who's a family member of an Ironman athlete or even a marathoner, like there's a lot of sacrifice 
uh, you know, kids, spouses, um, we appreciate you. It's, 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 a, it's an incredible team effort for sure. And how many have you done since you've been married? Oh, since I've been married? Yeah. Mm, I've done 13 total uh, since I've been married. Oh, Jesus, I know. Since I've been married, I think I've done seven. And does Abby train with you? Or is she like, Steve, you go have fun. Enjoy your little time. Um, you know, a little mixture of both. Um, I mean, she doesn't get, you know, into the, the crazy training like I do. Um, but, like, if I'm going to go for a ride or something, like, she'll definitely bike along. There's runs that we've gone on for sure. But they're, like, you know, I'll ask her to ride her bike along so she carries water and that sort of thing. We do have a tandem bike. So if she wants to take that and I'm just done running, I can just jump on the back <laughs> and we can go home. Um, but otherwise, I mean, she's, she, you know, she, she would have no problem being on a paddleboard next to me as I'm, you know, swimming through a lake or something, but she's also fine with me going off doing my thing or, uh, waking up early and training. So she's fine with that. But what I found out was that while we were dating, some of my training was interfering with our relationship. And, um, it's interesting if you kind of do some math, like you can spend a few thousand hours training and really what's it going to buy you? It's going to buy you, you know, maybe an hour or two of finishing time for this one race. So I've learned to, I can't say that I don't train because that's not true. I've learned to train very minimal for these events, just enough so I can finish and still be relatively comfortable. So now like we spend a lot of time together. We do birthday parties. We do family barbecues. I don't sacrifice that crazy time anymore to save myself two hours on race day. It's maybe a little more painful, but like temporary. So I think I've done, you know, a handful of them while, while we've been married and very minimal. So quick story. So we get married five years ago and I was signed up for Ironman Madison, which was going to take place two weeks after our, uh, 15 days after our wedding day, I was signed up, but I didn't train at all that whole summer because like in my mind, like I don't, I didn't train, you know, we're saving up for the wedding. I'm working. I bought a new clinic building. There's a lot of stuff that happened. And so it was, I was signed up. I just never leave. I never formally withdrew from it. Um, I figured I just, that'll just take care of itself. I'll just do it. You know, after I get back from our honeymoon or whatever. And we were we get you know we're in Mexico during our honeymoon and on the way we're at Margaritaville and the Cancun airport and I told Abby said what are your thoughts about me doing Ironman next weekend she said um, what I think she knew that I was registered for it but like there's we had no conversation about me doing it and she's like what are you talking about you haven't trained at all you haven't run a single mile and I'm like I know but like. I've done so many of them. Do I have muscle memory? I was really curious. Do I have muscle memory that could still take me through that day? And she's like, I've only been married to you for a week. Like, I want to have a husband for more than two weeks. And I told her, I said, here's, here's the condition. If I, if I feel that I'm not doing well, or if I don't feel I can do it, I'll pull myself out. And I'll be fine with it. And she said, okay. And so I... All I did to train is that I'm not a natural swimmer. So I got into the pool at the YMCA three times for about 40 minutes each just to get a feel of the water because I don't like the feeling that I'm going to drown or struggle in the water. So uh, I, I believe that was enough for me to get a feel of what that was like. 
and then I did it. And I did well. I, I, I mean, well, I finished for sure. I think my, it was never, it wasn't even my slowest time. Excuse me. And I finished in about 15 and a half hours. But what I learned the most there was that I can still do these things and, in, and enjoy it without sacrificing that family time and without sacrificing those important points. So, um, so all my races now are done with very minimal effort. It sounds cocky, and I, I promise it's not. It's just that um, I, I, I've just done so many of them. A lot of the mental stuff has already been cleared out. Well, but so. I also think wouldn't part of that – I know your day – starts incredibly early <laughs> yes and at that ungodly hour is when you get up and focus on starting your day and your routine and exercise yes. right yes so what ungodly hour do you see every morning <laughs> i'm getting better now for the last two years i've been getting up at 3 a.m to work out some people work. are just going to bed then. <laughs> i know i know now it's around four o'clock just because with coronavirus can uh, there's a lot of canceled races i'm just exercising right now for the sake of exercising to stay healthy and so with that i don't i don't have to go crazy and you know if i if i sleep in i sleep in but i usually make up for it and exercise for 45 minutes to an hour maybe at the end of the work day or that. So. so you're still exercising right away in the morning just to that's how you get your body going do, and, yeah. and start your day. Yeah. So you don't you're maintaining that physical capacity without having to train for Correct. any of your races. Correct. And it's habit now. So now like it's habit. Like the first thing I do in the morning is I exercise. So like I'll even wake up early. Uh, I might not set my alarm as early on the weekends, but I'll wake up. um and I'll go exercise and in some capacity. I like to jump rope, you know, get on the treadmill, weights, you know, a variety of things. But um, I won't get too crazy until I know that there's some goal, some race, some Guinness World Record or something. That I, I, was just gonna, I was just going to say in terms of getting crazy. <laughs> you are our crazy friend in a multiple Guinness mm -hmm. World Record holder. Mm-hmm. What prompted you to start down that course <laughs> and tell us about your first record? Sure. Uh, I think a lot of – I'm 41 years old. So back in the 80s, you have the Guinness World Record book, which had, you know, the fattest person alive, the tallest person, the longest hair, longest nails, those sorts of things. And as a, as a young child, very enamored with this book as time went on, it seems that they have expanded to uh, basically anything that's measurable and repeatable as a record now. I remember uh, on a lunch break, I was just perusing the internet. I don't know if it was a BuzzFeed article, but it was like, here are the 10 world records you can break on your lunch break. And I'm like, well, I'm on my lunch break. Let's see if I can do this. And so I'm reading through some of them. And one was um, the tallest stack of donuts in one minute. And it was nine. And I'm like really it's gotta be so easy of course i could break this and uh, i went to the local bakery uh like the next day two days later they're giving me a bunch of donuts i love donuts 
And I tried stacking them. I'm like, oh, this is a little more difficult <laughs> than I thought. Like, okay, got to roll up the sleeves and let's practice this. And so uh, six is hard. Stacking six is hard because the more, and I, the more weight you have on top, the pockets of the dough start to collapse. And, and they have to be fresh donuts, right? Have to be fresh donuts. And um, it becomes donut Jenga after a while. And so then, so then it, oh, it's okay. They have to be fresh. They have to be commercially available. They have to fit a certain size criteria. And uh, I found a bakery that fit those criteria. And um, I started practicing. And uh, nine was the world record at the time. And I was able to stack 13 in practice. But practice is different than the official attempt because the official attempt, you have to have it videotaped, you have to have it photographed, witnessed, timed, that sort of thing. And so during my official attempt, I stacked 10, which is one to beat the world record. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I actually did it. And, and so the people who are witnessing it, they're like, do you think you could have done more? I'm like, I might have. Like, okay, well, let's try a second attempt. So I tried a second attempt and I did 11, but I didn't want to push my luck because it was <laughs> one minute. And so that was my first Guinness World Record was in January of 2018, the tallest stack of donuts in one minute. The misnomer with that record is when people see that record certificate on my wall, they're like, you ate 11 donuts in one minute? It's like, no, 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 <laughs> you didn't read it. It's You stacked it. But one of the conditions of that record is that you have to prove that those do those donuts were consumed by humans. They just didn't feed it to your dog. Apparently, Guinness does not like wasting food. So, um, there were jelly donuts, and the witnesses that saw that record happen, they really didn't want to eat any of them. Two of them ate one donut each, and I ate nine jelly donuts after you stacked them, one right after the other. <laughs> 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Well, they wanted that record. Then that would kind of lead into another one of your Guinness World <laughs> Records that you did twice. <laughs> yes. And that would be guzzling down a liter of gravy yes. through a straw. Through a straw, yes. Was that your second and your most recent record? Um, it was or? my. It was actually my third. Um. I broke two Guinness World Records on the same day. I broke, this was done on my lunch break, between <laughs> patients, of course, because, you know. Uh, it was Because what else are you going to do on your lunch break between exactly. patients? I broke the world record for the fastest time to lace a shoe. And then. Which my kids try to replicate, by the way. Oh, they do. Not very well. Yeah. Some people are like, I can tie a shoe way faster. No, no, no. It's lacing a shoe, not tying a shoe. And so then uh, immediately after that, I broke the world record for the fastest time to drink a liter of gravy. Mm. And one of the rules with that is you have to do it through a straw that has a certain width, a certain length, and a certain viscosity of gravy has to be commercially available. So I broke those two on the same day. So how long did it take you to guzzle down a liter of gravy the first time? One minute, 12 and a half seconds. And you were just telling me before we started that a woman in in England mm -hmm. beat your record and made you mad. Yes. So you had to beat it again. I, 
you know, I can't say that I'm a super competitive person. I'm, I'm very competitive with myself because I set myself to a high level of, uh, of performance and I set some high standards for myself. Um, records are meant to be broken. And my donut stacking record uh, was broken. Um, I got a little upset about that. Haven't tried to beat that one again yet? Stay tuned. Yet. Okay. Yeah, was the operative term. Yep. Um, but the gravy record, it's become, this is stupid, but it's become somewhat of an identity of mine, you know, <laughs> because I have had game shows call me at my clinic and say, hey, is this Steve Rupel? I said, it is. Um, do you have the Guinness World Record for the fastest time to drink a liter of gravy? And I would say, yes. Oh, well, my name is so-and-so. I'm this casting director from this particular show. Yada, yada, yada. And uh, I've had radio shows call me uh, around Thanksgiving. They want to talk <laughs> about the record. And it's really odd that I, I have two high-powered degrees. I help a lot of people. Yes, I, you do. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, I think I do in my professional life. And, you know, in some philanthropic efforts, I think I do some great things. But the one thing that I get the most notoriety from is drinking a liter of gravy. Through a straw. Through a straw. And it's, it's incredible to me that's how the world works right now. And so with that, drinking gravy has become an identity. And I own gravychugger.com. <laughs> oh, I haven't done anything oh, with the website. Steve. But it's a domain that I own. So... <laughs> So um, that that just puts you into a whole I different know, category, Steve. I know. So I had um, I saw my record was broken. It was just like a punch to the chest. It was like, oh, really? And um, so I was mad all summer. Like, I got to re-break this. And so that's what I've been working on. And then two weeks ago, I unofficially rebroke that record. And I say unofficially because Guinness has not certified that yet. I don't. But you went through all of the steps with the filming and the the witnesses and everything. Correct. Yeah. So they have all the evidence. I got confirmation today that they they have my evidence. They will review it shortly, and I'm just waiting confirmation. I I can't think of any reason for them to not approve it because the same steps were followed uh, when I originally broke it. I used a different gravy this time different brand uh so i don't see i don't see any evidence that would make them not approve it let's put it that way so well now in terms of records that have gained you notoriety mm -hmm. another one that i happen to know of was how many times did you see captain marvel I saw in a theater officially 132 times now how does one sit through the same movie while it's playing at the oh. theater 132 times? It's tough. You know, and on the surface, people are like, oh, my gosh, that is the stupidest and the easiest thing. Anyone can do that. Um, well, number one, it's a huge oh, time commitment. It's a huge Sitting time. on your butt. Oh, my gosh. It's horrible. And, you know, to some people, to some couch potatoes, it might be a dream. But, like, you know, I'm balancing a marriage and a business and you know life in general and you know but i have this goal that it's like a freight train like like this is the objective the objective was to hit more than 103 
viewings, which was the existing record at the time. And, well, we can't just hit it. We got to, like, totally annihilate you, it, right? You have to. And, and you have to squelch any people who might then get inspired to break your record, which is exactly what happened immediately after I broke the record. And so... Um, you mean your 132 doesn't stand very long? So, so here's the thing. I, there is a, there is a media article done about me and this record when I hit 160. The premature thing, but like is just with media, they just want to get things out as fast as they can because they have a slot open that day. And so like, Hey, I hit 116. I broke the existing record. It's not official yet because I'm still breaking the record. And, um, and so I hit 132 and then immediately I'm seeing on Twitter that there's some guy, I don't even know where he lives. I think in Florida or something, he's trying to break. So I did it with Captain Marvel. The Avengers Endgame came out immediately after that. And he's breaking my record with that movie. Like that makes no sense because the reason why I didn't choose that movie was because it's three hours long compared to Captain Marvel, which the running time is two hours and three minutes. Like, you know, cost versus, you know, cost time. Cost, like, benefit, reward. Like, so he's breaking it. I'm like, there's no way this can be real. Like, I bet he's just buying these tickets and he's just, like, just saying it. And so it was just, it was just very odd. So long story short, um, that record still hasn't been approved by Guinness. Uh, I think that there there's over 600 pieces of evidence that I had to submit that I think they're still going through. And, and with, with coronavirus, things have been just backed up. And so my the record that I broke last August was the fastest time to roller skate a marathon. That just got approved the other week. And there's another – I broke the record for the fastest time. How about time. the T-shirts? Oh, so, um, yeah, that was two and a half years ago. So I broke the record for the most T-shirts worn while running a half marathon. I wore six T-shirts. So um, that was before the coronavirus area. That that was all that stuff was submitted. That was a that was that was a straightforward slam dunk. Like, you know, that was it was a certified race. So that was the the evidence for that was easy. It was a hard record to do. The evidence was easy. But the Captain Marvel one, there's so much evidence. Plus, coronavirus has just really slowed down their system. Everyone's you know everyone's quarantined. Everyone's at home. So guess what? They were just breaking records left and right. It seems so. That's funny. It is funny. <laughs> so how many records do you hold? Oh. Official records do you oh. hold? So currently I hold one record. I've broken like eight of them. Um, but currently I am the current world record holder for the fastest time to roller skate a marathon. All the other ones I've broken have either been not have either been broken again by someone or they have not yet been approved by Guinness. Hopefully okay. that makes sense. So how many have you held or that you're that have either been broken or that you're waiting for the verification in addition to the one record that you currently hold? Eight records. Eight records. Yep. And does that include two for the, the gravy? Uh, that's the same record, so I that's just one. So So you're not even taking it that I held it. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, I'm like, I'm excited for this to be approved 
because um, I want to start a YouTube channel. Mostly not because I want to, just because everyone keeps telling me I need to. And I think that would be a good one to kind of help springboard it. Um, and so, like, you know, people are just fascinated by that record. So I'm kind of excited to have it back. And if for some reason this isn't approved, guess who's drinking more gravy? Oh, this guy. God bless you, Steve, for being able to do that. Thank you. You seriously have I to do have it an for iron America. stomach. We need to get this record back on American soil where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. So <laughs> I just, I had a question. <laughs> it's gone. Oh, no worries. No worries. Um, <laughs> okay. Throughout your Guinness experience. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you've learned about yourself mm. in setting and reaching those goals? Aside from that, you have an absolute iron stomach. <laughs> you know, that's a good one. Um, you know, that's a really good question. And it's, um, it's just really interesting because... Like I mentioned before, I remember reading the world record book when I was younger and just like just in awe of being unique. And I think when you're young, you want to be unique because um, it's just, I don't know. I think it's just interesting that there's something that about you that sets you apart from other people. And some people like to blend in. I was never one who guess really wanted to blend in, I guess, but um, but now as an adult, it's like, you know, I'm kind of living out my childhood dream. And um, so, you know, maybe not drinking gravy, but, but you know, when I broke the record for the fastest time to roller skate a marathon, like no one roller skates anymore. I know there's roller derby, but like no one roller skates. They roller blade or they just play video games at home, I guess. But I remember when I was in fourth and fifth grade, I roller skated at the rink in Medford, Wisconsin all the time, skate rink. And so I thought like, my fourth grade self would be so proud they broke this record. <laughs> Who had ever thought I'd be resurrecting this again? So, you know, it's just interesting just reverting back to your childhood and, and that sort of thing. So it's just, you know, appreciating some of those things. But then, you know, throughout all this, I have like this little army of like nine-year-old boys who are just fascinated by all my records. And all my certificates are in my are in my treating room and, and you've seen them. And, you know, the kids love to come in and look at them like – gravy that's gross and, and that so, is gross and so and i'm really <laughs> excited just to add more because you know kids love it and you know if i can be you know somewhat of a world record role model of these kids why the heck not and how many of your patients whether it's the the kids or the older kids <laughs> over 18 um how many of them look for guidance in terms of how do you, is there a strategy behind coming, becoming a Guinness World Record holder or what does it take to, to do that? Or how do you find the time? You know, some people, just because my records are weird, you know, it would be, it would be different if I held the record for the most pushups done in 24 hours. I mean, that's, I mean, a superhuman strength. I mean, then I think your what you asked would be a little bit more applicable. But because mine are weird, stacking donuts, drinking gravy, watching movies, I mean, it's just it dabbles into the esoteric so deep that I maybe don't get those questions. What's really interesting, though, is that 
I personify those records where like you, someone could see these records and think like, oh my gosh, this superhuman person did it. I'm a very average person, I think in many, many ways. So I'll have kids that like, oh, I'm going to beat your record because, because I think I'm, mine have said that <laughs> they have. And, and it's like, oh, like this guy is, there's nothing special about this guy. And there's not, I'm, I'm very average. And they're like, oh, he's a very average person. I can break this. And fantastic. If you want to chug gravy, by all means, go for it. <laughs> if you break my record, you get all the glory that goes along with it. If you don't break my record, you get a belly full of gravy and kidney stones. Oh. <laughs> Alrighty then. <laughs> and a whole lot of pain that goes with it. I know. Yeah. What is some of the best advice that you've received so far in your life? We might have to pause this. Um, it's a great question, and it's um, it all depends on kind of who it comes from, too. So, yeah, the joy of the question is you get to decide. I know. Um, so, my mother, she essentially raised eight of us by herself. My mother was not a very encouraging person. She, she was trying to. She was trying to feed a whole family. So she, so with that, you can't really take risks. And so she was adverse to a lot of risk-taking. So I had, uh, at the time when I was in high school, I had two older brothers who graduated high school, went to the military, settled down, got regular jobs, entry-level jobs. And I remember her saying, like, why do you want to go to college? That's a lot of money. You can just do what your brothers did. Well, I just don't want to do that. Where are you in the lineup of the eight? Number six of eight. Okay. Yep. There's four boys, four girls. And so my mother was not encouraging. And I don't want to say that that's not a bad thing. She just wasn't very encouraging. Well, she was doing the best she had. Absolutely. The best she could with what she had. Absolutely. What I will say, though, is that she never stood in my way. She so there's her encouragement, correct, for not being very encouraging, correct. And she she never stood in the way of what I wanted to do. And you know, now that I'm a chiropractor, she's very she still hasn't let me work on her. Um, she thinks <laughs> I'm the best chiropractor in the world, but she for other people. Uh, yep, yep. She, no, I, I don't I don't need that. What do I need a chiropractor for? But you're the best, but you know. Well, and you have a brother who's a chiropractor too, yeah. right? So we haven't had that conversation yet. Like, okay, which one's better? And so it's like, oh, it's like, you know, you when, both when, are. it's like when your kids ask you like, mom, who do you love the most? Like, I love you all the same. Yeah, no, we um, always say Joey. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, um, I think, I think we're both the best chiropractors in the world, but no. She, so she, again, she wasn't encouraging uh, in the regard, like, yes, this is your dream. You need to go for it. It's just like, mom, this is my dream. And she didn't stand in my way, which is, um, I think, equally as important. And it worked out well. See, so it wasn't that hard of a question. You know, but I mean, it, but it's a great, it's a hard one. It's a great question. It requires a lot of thought. And then but you can, you can also categorize that like, okay, what, you know, what would be the best adv advice your, your mentor uh, would give you. Well, or... that's a very good question, Steve. So, so what is the best I'm advice? i answer my own question. Sure, why not? Um, 
there's just a lot of really good stuff and and there's uh, and I love jumping on quotes too. So if if I were to answer the question like, you know, mentor and again I'm going to bring up Dr. Bob Kaminsky. Um the best advice he gave me when I was exiting from my previous employer was if if while you are I mean he told me like, you know, tell him the truth like you know i was spinning my wheels i was not advancing i was not getting any help to advance and so he said you know be honest with that you know thank him for the opportunity which i did but he said if he starts going negative don't follow him there he said just stop it there and be done and that's truly exactly what happened um you know he started going negative i he repeatedly called me unprofessional and I, I could have laid into him because like, uh, like, um, and we haven't spoken since at all. And uh, I don't have anything to say to him. Um, I, he went negative and I just, and I, I said, I said, okay, we're done here. And I left. That was it. And so that was the best advice. But, and, but to my, what I was saying before, I, I, I do love quotes as well. And I, I mentioned the Kenny Rogers quote. Uh, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Uh, that one's still stuck in my head. But one of my favorite quotes that I like now and is very applicable is some days you're the hammer and some days you're the nail. I love that because if you believe that's true, if you're having a bad day, you're the nail. Like the goal is not to be always be the nail. Like you need to be the hammer at some point. Well, the goal like, is to minimize those days when you are the nail. Absolutely. But, you know, but if if you have a bad day, it's okay to have a bad day. You know, it's okay to have a bad day. Those bad days, you're due. You're due to have those bad days. But you're also due to be that hammer. And you know that you need to be the hammer when you're the hammer. Well, but don't you think in terms of those bad days that those are the learning days, that we can't always win. We need to have the days that challenge us, that make us stop and pause and to a certain extent doubt ourselves where we have, we have to dig a little deeper to go farther. Absolutely. And, and with those bad days, yes, you have to learn something from it. Of course, you can't wallow in it. If you wallow in it, you you don't learn anything at all and it's like okay then why did we have this bad day was it you know influenced by someone else and and actually there's a spot in your book too that i like that i don't know if it's a tony robbins quote but it talks about and i mean you know you can recite your book but and i don't have to go through it but when you talk about um what is it like uh when you trade sorry forgive me it's okay when you trade appreciation versus expectation, is that, am I saying that right? Now you're going to make me really think. So if you trade expectation for appreciation, right. you're going to go farther because it goes along with the whole notion of gratitude. Yes. And, and so many times where expectation does not meet reality and you can have a bad day. You can have, you know, bad encounters and that sort of thing where it's like, you know, like you said, if you have a bad day, you learn from it. Okay. Were my, were my expectations met? What did I appreciate from today? What can I, uh, what can I 
take from this and learn. So, um, yeah. So, do you believe that you're living your life purpose? I do. I do. I believe my life purpose is to help people. I it might not always be in the forefront of my brain every single day, but usually when I think I'm the hammer, um, I that's when I'm consciously living my life's purpose. So, do you believe you're living your life purpose? I do. Good. At what point did you realize what your life purpose was and how you were going to best fulfill that purpose? When I wasn't living my life purpose. So, the you know, going back to Dow Corning is that, you know, I, I'm making some company more money and I... It was just this rat race that I didn't think that that's what I, that I was created for, and so it's like, okay, I believe my my purpose is to help people. How am I going to facilitate that? And um, you know, and at that time, it was the summer of two thousand one. I thought, okay, it's becoming a chiropractor and doing that. And um, fast forward now, it's twenty the end of twenty twenty, and I still believe in that purpose, and I still have that profession. I, I really love what I do, and sometimes you know people can ask like, oh, if you weren't a chiropractor, what else would you do? I'm not really sure because there's a lot of variety in what I do. I see a lot of different people, I see a lot of different cases, and I stay in my lane too. Um, chiropractors can get lumped into some weirdo subsets uh, of people. And I don't always identify those. And I consider myself uh, like a soft tissue specialist. And I try to stay in that lane as much as possible. And um, and so, but, you know, I think as of now, as I'm 41 years old and this is the end of 2020, I believe my purpose is helping people through chiropractic. And who knows? I might be a serial world record breaker. And, you know, my next purpose is inspiring kids to believe in themselves and break their own records. And who says I can't do both? Who says you aren't already doing that? True story. True that. <laughs> so since you brought up 2020 yes. and we're coming to the end of 2020, which, you know, you talk about 2020 vision. I'm pretty confident that if anybody had any idea of what 2020 would look like, we'd probably just skip to 2021. Very much so. What's one thing that you learned throughout this entire exercise that we've been going through this year with the lockdowns and the pandemic and the the uncertainty on a daily basis? Two big lessons. Uh, first of all is to pivot. What I mean by that is I was gearing up for 2020 being a big race season. I was going to attempt to do three Ironman races in 30 days in three states. Oh, in, good grief. In Oklahoma, Utah, and Texas. and Nice, cool states, by yeah, the way. Yeah. And I'd never done any Ironmans that early in the season. That was all going to be in the month of May. And so I was really gearing up for that. But I was also going to re-break my, marath- my, my T-shirt record uh, for the half marathon. I was going to wear 100 T-shirts while running a half marathon and all of a sudden COVID hit and all races that took care of the races done completely done and I wasn't left with a sense of despair because like like it's not just me like it's gone for everyone like okay 
then became a point of pivoting. Like, okay, races are shut down. I still like running, biking, and swimming and working out. But like, what else can I learn? I love learning. What else can I do within the confines of a safer home order or social distancing, physical distancing, whatever you want to call it. And I started fishing. Can't get much more physically distanced than that. And I kind of liked it. I never understood why someone would want to, you know, spend all this time to catch something and then just throw it back. Um, but it's been kind of fun. I bought a, a big green egg, uh, a smoker, so I can smoke meats. Barbecued ribs are my favorite food. It's a nice little trivia question. You can put on Wikipedia someday. Barbecued <laughs> ribs are my favorite food. So, and so I learned how to smoke those, and I, I love doing it. I, I started to, I, I started to love cooking, and my wife loves it now. Well, and experimenting with your cooking too, not just so. doing the run of the mill. Very much so. Um, you know. I uh, make I'm I'm smoking these pork shoulders and then it's okay I'm making this pork shoulder this is the flavor that's gonna come out of it what are some complimentary sides I could make and so I, I'm spending you know all day Sundays now kind of cooking and prepping around this and my wife is perfectly fine with it because you know we could eat an amazing meal at the end of it and plus we have leftovers for the next you know three four days and it's been it's been great and it's it's been pivoting it's not giving anything up. Uh, in my in my opinion, at least for me, it's learning these new skills, but because I can always pivot back. And the other lesson would be is to cancel out the noise, because as you know, this year was a lot of noise. It's full of it, and it's not dull dulling at, at any time soon. And it's just how to do that, how to disconnect who to trust with information and you know where do you go for you know the sources that you would like um so i think those would probably be the the biggest lessons of the year so i'm kind of getting the let's wrap it up symbol from the technical director from the technical director so i think that's a great place to stop in terms of those are wonderful takeaways that no matter what life has to throw at us, we always get a choice on how we want to respond and react to it. For sure. And it's always our choice, too. And um, and I think that we're learning that with this year, everyone has a choice. It's whatever choice they are willing to make. So choose to be happy, productive, and be a Guinness World Record Breaker. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm choosing that we need to do this again for part two. This is fantastic. I love this. So thank you for uh, joining me, Steve. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. You betcha. We done now? Hey, that was super fun. It was.